litter. This month taxes are walkers' resources more than any. You can hardly screw up your courage to take a walk when all is thus tightly locked or frozen up, and so little is to be seen in field or wood. Henry David Thoreau. December is a quiet month. I looked out over a rolling landscape of empty fields divided into squares by long, straight hedges. The only sounds were of distant cars. When did it become normal to hear more traffic than wildlife? Everything felt subdued, but I was glad to be beginning this project at the tail end of a year, so that I could experience everything perking up in the brighter days to come. With practice, a map becomes as clear as a picture and almost as full of imagined detail. This week's grid square seemed to be as hilly as almost anywhere on my map. A rare treat for me in this flat, sanitised region. I adore land with contour lines, curvy and sensuous, filled with possibility. A lone farm at the top corner was the square's only building. One minor road shaved the left-hand side. A hilltop ran along the eastern edge, along with 600 metres of bridleway, the only technically permitted access on the grid square. I was looking forward to exploring all this empty space. Even so, I found it hard to escape the tyranny of my mobile phone's frivolous temptations as I began walking. I'll just quickly check. I thought, my emails, my social feeds,、uh, Leeds United. I had to force myself to put the phone away. Chastising myself with the reminder that I was here to pay attention to the world, not to escape from it. That included acknowledging the ugly things too, and trying to be interested in them. First up was a Muck Cafe iced coffee cup, the latest addition to my Muck menu of litter. A Coca-Cola bottle, the world's biggest plastic polluter most years, and a heap of fly tipping. Litter had been lobbed from cars in every passing place along the narrow road. I hated seeing litter on every grid square I visited. As well as the bottles and sweet wrappers, someone had tossed away a banana skin. That's far less of a problem than plastic, certainly, but fruit can still take a couple of years to decompose. The John Muir Trust removed a thousand banana skins from the summit of Ben Nevis during a cleanup. This matters here because, in the heated arguments surrounding increased public access to the countryside, litter has taken on a totemic significance. Of course, you shouldn't allow the filthy public to roam at will. Think of all the litter they'll drop. Of course, you should allow the public to roam. Only a few people drop litter, and that's because they're disconnected from the landscape. Educate them to care, and everybody wins. And round and round it goes. There are countless examples of public-spirited souls opening up their land, only to see it spoilt with burnt-out cars, piles of litter, torn-off branches, and trampled bluebells. Increase the number of permissive access routes to create circular walks for people, and you risk off-roaders roaring around and cutting through sheep fences. Turning peaceful and biodiverse woods into noisy, muddy trackways and livestock being killed. 
It's interesting, or interesting to me at least, to consider the history of littering. After the First World War, American industry boomed, but this required consumers to buy more and more stuff to keep up with the pace of production and ensure profits stayed high. Since we only need a finite amount of junk, manufacturers began persuading us to throw things away and buy more. They started advertising, inventing new trends, building obsolescence into products, and encouraging a disposable culture. And so began our pandemic of littering. A narrow focus on individuals who drop litter diverts attention and responsibility from the industries that continue to produce single-use products in vast quantities. America's crying Indian TV ad was incredibly successful at this in the 1970s. It's a similar trick to the tactic of BP, the fossil fuel company, which hired an advertising firm to help concoct the notion of the personal carbon footprint and all the personal guilt that goes with it to put the blame for climate change onto individuals and thereby distract from the true villain, the industry itself, with just 20 firms being responsible for a third of all global carbon emissions. People litter for many reasons, including the social influence of whether others have dropped a litter, feeling alienated, a lack of education, that it is easier to litter than not to do so, and a failure of enforcement. It is an ugly byproduct of the way we live and our increasing estrangement from nature and community. Litter and disconnection were recurring issues as I explored my map, looping round and round in their own grubby version of a circular economy. Would tackling one stop the other? Are they keystone indicators of the way we mistreat the landscape? Or are they red herrings that distract from more important matters? Shaming litterers seems likely only to provoke more littering rather than encouraging us to love where we live. Perhaps we need to positively encourage personal responsibility and to save our shaming for the profiteering manufacturers churning out plastic, for our throwaway society as a whole and for our government for not enforcing change. How can we build pride within communities so people don't want to live in litter? Those who believe that allowing access to the countryside will result in a pestilence of litter are quick to harumph and shame the kids dropping drinks bottles, but rarely offer alternative ways for them to forge connections with nature and where they live. The other side, who argue that access for all will be fine once the litterers are educated, also have no magic bullet solutions to reach the masses. Finally, how much does dropping litter matter in the grand scheme of things? Putting your crisp bag in a bin rather than lobbing it into a field means only that it will be carted off to a landfill site or incinerator, often in a distant poor country. Its toxic impact on the planet is no less than if it lay in the field. We focus on the crisp bag but are blind to the overgrazed lands stripped of wildlife. A farmhand in his tractor cab didn't see me as he flailed a hedgerow to within an inch of its life. 
He was the only person I saw all afternoon. I waited for the tractor to turn away from me and then nipped through a strip of woodland into a field. I emerged at the top of a valley with a relatively huge expanse of open space before me. This was the closest I had come to proper hills on my map so far. A joy and peace welled up inside me. I have a yearning for space and solitude that I underestimate until moments like this remind me of what I had been missing this year. A few crows flew across my eyeline. Although we don't say a few crows, of course, for we have the eccentric convention of animal collective nouns to enjoy. Thus, it was a murder of crows that flew across my eyeline. Most of these quirky terms of venery date back to a 15th century nun called Juliana Berners. She coined the terms in the first colour book in English, the Book of St Albans containing treaties on hawking, hunting and coats of armour. They include a wake of buzzards, a commotion of coots, an asylum of cuckoos, a curfew of curlews, a crown of kingfishers and a conspiracy of ravens. But how was I to know if I was watching a murder rather than a conspiracy? How do you tell the difference between rooks and crows, other than knowing that crows are larger? The secret is to remember the old saying, a crow in a crowd is a rook, and a rook on its own is a crow. The lonely core of a crow is synonymous in my mind with misty dusks. Rooks, by contrast, are sociable and noisy birds that nest in colonies and feed and flock together. In winter, these groups can number hundreds. A mouth-watering sight, I imagine, back in the day when rook pie was a popular rural meal. It was a dank winter's day, grey and two-dimensional. But from this viewpoint, the foggy haze felt cosy and private. Although I'd never been here before, the landscape felt familiar and reassuring. Green and pleasant fields are a classic pastoral snapshot, and I grew up in countryside like this. In the years I spent overseas, my nostalgic memories were often of the traditional rolling hills of home. But much of this lush, fertilised land is actually starved of nature, planted with grass seed mixtures designed to maximise nutrition for cows and reduce feed costs, but at a cost in biodiversity. After I read George Monbiot's Feral, with its bold claim that the sheep has caused more extensive environmental damage in this country than all the building that has ever taken place, I started to look at our countryside through a new lens, seeing a sheep-scraped misery and a sad emptiness, those upland hills I adored. The late ecologist Frank Fraser Darling labelled our uplands as wet deserts, such as the lack of nature on the overstocked, overgrazed, damaged land. Pockets of the Elan Valley in the Cambrian Mountains are known as the Desert of Wales because of the dominance of Malinia grass and the lack of biodiversity caused by overgrazing and clearing. But I am so accustomed to neat green countryside that when I first visited the Nepp estate in Sussex, the pin-up trophy of the British rewilding movement, 
I was disappointed by how scruffy it looked. There's a fabulous one-star rating on TripAdvisor saying that NEP resembled a piece of wasteland such as you would find behind an industrial estate. We have ingrained ideas about the countryside and farming, influenced by our shifting baselines and dating back to the picture books we enjoyed as children, with happy farmers and their happy animals. But the truth is that many modern farms are factories, not fairy tales. Although these fields were grazing pasture, I couldn't see any cattle. They had been moved into winter sheds to avoid damaging the sodden ground and to be fed a high-protein diet that would boost milk production towards anything as high as 60 litres per day. As farms have grown, it has become easier to take the grass to the cows than the other way around. When I walked past the farm later, I had to wade through slurry that oozed under the cow shed doors. Keeping animals indoors, as opposed to grazing them outside all year, is time-consuming and also entails high fossil fuel costs to make silage, feed the animals and then remove their slurry, which is a pollution hazard. I did eventually see some cows near the end of my walk through endless fields of rye grass. About 20 ran towards me on the footpath to say hello. I'm fond of cows and like having a chat with them, but I erred on the side of caution as they galloped my way. I hurdled a fence with a yellow sign, warning, bull in field, and said hello from behind the fence, preferring to take my chance with the lone, uninterested bull rather than the flighty females. They came to a halt in front of me, chewed the cud lugubriously, and peered at me with big brown eyes. Apart from that minor excitement, the rest of the walk was pleasant but uneventful. I hiked down a hill, up the other side, down another hill, and then back up again. I wasn't used to such exertion. I enjoyed it though, my muscles warming with the effort and my eyes taking in the ever-changing views. I stopped for lunch at the highest point of the square, sheltering under a scrubby hawthorn tree to keep off some of the drizzle. Millions of water droplets, tiny shining globes, gleamed on the blades of grass. I pulled the thermos flask from my rucksack and poured a steaming mug of bright red homemade beetroot soup. It was hot and colourful and the perfect antidote to the day's cold, monochrome weather. Where I live, there are an average of 400 people squashed into every square kilometre, a hundred times more than in Iceland. But here I was, on the quietest of hilltops, with almost a whole grid square to myself, slurping soup. I felt lucky to have got off the busy and beaten track today. All these hills and fields disappearing into the mist had even been sufficiently beguiling to help me resist the habit of reaching for my phone to just quickly check.